Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. In our day, they talk a lot on the news about the the schism in America and the division between the parties, and they they often use the word polarized to describe our nation. I think that in a lot of ways that is is often true, and I can see it from both sides. I definitely have a a side of the aisle that I'm on. I'm, I'm for traditional biblical marriage, and I don't believe that abortion is a woman's health issue. I think it's an infant health issue. And so that usually puts me kind of pretty squarely on one side of the important issues in my life. But I can see on both sides this polarization and this, and I think part of it is because of the issues, but a part of it is also because of personality. I think we've gone too far when we can't recognize anything good coming from the other side. I know with some of the newscasters are just so, so biased, so one-sided that they won't even acknowledge when the other side does something that is good. Well, as we look at this passage, that's exactly where Jesus is. He's in a very similar situation to our political situation today. The Pharisees were a group of people that uh, had a lot of power with the people. They were leaders. They were common people. They were people that also had a trade. They had a they they had jobs that they did during the day as well. And then, but they were a Pharisee, part of the ruling body uh, in their society as well. The Sadducees were people that were they were your aristocrats. They were your the upper echelon of society. They knew it, and they were uh, 
a little bit more arrogant and a little bit more aloof in the way that they were in their society. But here's the deal. The Sadducees had power because of Rome. In fact, after Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, the Sadducees kind of went out of existence because Rome recognized the Sadducees and the Sadducees controlled the priesthood of the temple. So they had those two things. They had the temple and they had Rome's backing. And so the Sadducees were favorable towards Rome because that kept them in power. The Pharisees hated Rome's influence in their dealings. And their power was more with the common people of Israel. But then you have the Herodian. And so they supported Herod. So you can imagine they didn't get along too well with the Pharisees either. But what you see happening is Jesus is encountering these different groups of people as you have this last big confrontation. In fact, that's what we're seeing today as we see as we look in this passage is we see Christ in confrontation. He's right in the midst of all of this political mess. They're trying to get rid of him. Christ is he's in the middle of this confrontation. We see the Pharisees coming. Actually, the Pharisees this time, they don't even come themselves. They send their disciples. And I think that the reason they do that is for appearance. Because they've been pretty outwardly against Christ and opposing Christ. So for them to come in the way that they want to approach Him would just be so outwardly hypocritical that everybody would recognize it. So what they do is they send their disciples. In verse 15 it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him in His words, and they sent their disciples to Him along with, notice the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other because of that issue of supporting Herod. But they're willing to link arms, and that's why you see all this hypocrisy and, and this lack of sincerity. You see these people that any other day, any other issue are uh, adamantly against one another, all of a sudden are going to come and lock arms together to come against the one enemy, Jesus Christ. And the Sadducees will do the same thing. So you've got enemies linking together to try to confront Christ. And you see the insincerity of it. And the hypocrisy because the Pharisees, because they're going to come and they're going to use flattery and they're going to kind of butter Jesus up. Every time there's flattery, there's usually insincerity. And so they come and they say, hey, we know that you speak the truth and we know that you're all about the truth. You don't care about appearances. Everything that they're saying is absolutely right about Jesus, but they don't believe a word of it. They're just kind of buttering him up for this situation that they put him in. Now, what are they seeking to do? Well, they're seeking to do Two things, I think, as we look through the whole passage. We see that one, it's an attempt to destroy Jesus. With this first question, they're really trying to get rid of him. Using the question about the taxes is a volatile question. So they're trying to get Jesus on the wrong side of Caesar so that Caesar will get rid of Jesus. The word tax there is probably best understood or interpreted as a poll tax, uh, which is, comes from the same word. The Greek word for that is the same word that we get our word census from. When they count the people, it's the same idea as when Mary and Joseph went traveling to Bethlehem so that they could be there for the census, so that they could pay their poll tax, their census tax. It was the most hated of the taxes that Romans taxed the Jewish people for, and that was that it basically was a tax on every individual within the empire. Rome provided a lot of things in the empire, and so they collected a lot of different taxes, but this one tax degraded them the most. Well, in AD 6, this guy Judas of Galilee led a revolt to throw off this poll tax. And you know what happened? Rome came in and they killed Judas. Followers scattered and came to nothing. In fact, when you read the book of Acts chapter 5, I think it's in verse 27, when Peter and John are on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they're trying to decide what are we going to do with these people that keep preaching the resurrection of Jesus, Gamaliel said don't do anything. 
And he said, remember Judas? He caused a problem. Rome took care of it. And his disciples scattered. If these guys cause an uprising, Rome will take care of it. The disciples will scatter if it's not of God. And he says, if it is of God, then you're fighting against God anyway, so you're in trouble that way. So Gamaliel remembered that. Well, that's exactly the same kind of mess that these people are trying to get Jesus in. They think they've got him trapped. The disciples of the Pharisees are there that are opposed to paying the Roman tax. But they're not making a big stink about it because they don't want to be attacked by Rome. But the Herodians are in favor of it. And so they figure we've got Jesus right where we want him. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, then the Herodians can be testify against that to, to Caesar. And we've got Jesus in trouble. We can get rid of him. If he says, do pay the tax, then all the common people are going to be against him. And he will lose his ability to influence. But we see in John chapter 11, we kind of see the mindset of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says, so the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So that's their big concern. And so just a couple days before the moment of the passage that we're looking at now, they're racking their minds. If we don't get rid of this guy, we're going to lose our control. We're going to lose our power. We're going to be taken out of our position of authority and we're going to lose our nation. And so they're desperately trying to get rid of Jesus. So they're trying to destroy him. If they can't destroy him with Caesar, the other thing that they want to do is discredit him. The Sadducees come before Jesus and they try to make him look ridiculous. There was seven brothers all married to the same wife. In the resurrection, who's she going to be? They asked this ridiculous question to try to make him look foolish. And don't we see that a lot in politics of our day? We see that a lot in our argumentation over uh, ethics and issues in Bible things, too. I, can't, I don't know how many times I've looked at, like, for example, in arguments uh, against uh, homosexuality in the, in the Bible and God's view of that. And I don't know how many times I pe- see people compare it to God's command for the Israelites not to eat shellfish. And I think, what a ridiculous comparison. But they make it almost every time. That's exactly what these people are here are doing. They're saying, okay, this idea of the resurrection, let's say that the same wife ends, ends up, the same lady ends up married to all seven brothers. Who gets her in the resurrection? They're trying to make Jesus look foolish. They're trying to discredit him. Of course, in the end, he's not the one that looks foolish. But as they go through this, there's four different issues, and that's what I'd like to address, four different issues that are brought up. The first issue that we see is the issue of taxes. They ask Jesus, well, should we, should we pay that tax or not? And Jesus answers that in, a, in an awesome, awesome way. He says, let me see the coin. The coin that you had to pay that, because there was different kinds of money. There was Jewish money and Roman money. And the coin that you had to pay that with was the denarius. The denarius was Roman money, which Roman money always consisted with on one side of the coin. There was an uh, engraving of Caesar. His image was on it. And on the other side, told you what the coin was worth. So as we look at that, Jesus asks them that simple question. He says, well, whose image is on it? It's Caesar's. He says, well, then I tell you what, if it's his, give it to him. He's telling them without a doubt, pay your, pay your taxes. He says, but whatever is God's, give it to God. You see, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was considered a god. He was, he was to be worshipped. In fact, that's where Christians would get in trouble with Rome. Rome didn't care if you had other gods when you came into their empire. You could bring your gods with you, but you had to hail Caesar. And the Christians would not do that. The Christians would not venerate or worship Caesar. And Jesus tells them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Now, I love this because 
Remember what he asked them about the coin. Whose image is on it? The coin bore the image of Caesar. Therefore it's his. Give it to him. But then when he says, give to God what is God's, think about that. What image do we bear? The Bible says that we are made in the image of God. We bear God's image. The coin bears Caesar's image. We bear God's image. So the coin goes to Caesar. We go to God's. Jesus is commanding them to give their their loyalty, their worship, their their whole selves to God. Well, what about Christians? It's often said that there are only two things that are certain that we have to do, and that's uh, pay taxes and die. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about both of them, actually. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul would write to the citizens of Rome, capital of the Roman Empire, and he would tell them, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. You see, our Christian responsibility for our government is to show honor and respect to our leadership, and to render obedience and pay our taxes. You know, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated and I, with, on tax issues. Sometimes I remember when I was a younger Christian, I remember thinking, you know what? When uh, they use my tax dollars to kill innocent babies, that's not right. And for a time I thought maybe I should not pay my taxes if it's going to go to things like that. And I should be justified in doing so. But this passage and others like it corrected me. I didn't stop paying taxes, by the way. I said I considered stopping paying taxes. And I thought, well, if I do that, I'll end up in jail. But if i got to go to jail to make God's point or, or whatever, I, that's okay. But I looked into it a little farther, and I realized that in Rome, there are a lot of things that that tax money was supporting in Rome that were not God-honoring. And he told these Roman citizens, you pay your taxes. And so they were to pay their taxes. They were continued to show honor and respect for their leadership. And so if they were to do it in Rome where you really didn't have a choice of your government and your officials and your leadership, then me in a free country where we do have at least an opportunity to vote and have an influence in, our, in the process, how much more responsible am I to pay my taxes and to honor the, our leadership as well? Well, the next issue that is brought to Jesus is from the Sadducees, and it involves the resurrection. And they give that story about this, the lady that has seven husbands before she finally dies. And Jesus corrects him. And notice why he corrects him. He corrects him because you don't understand two things. You don't understand, one, the power of God. And you don't understand the Word of God. That's, what, that's where you're missing the boat. Power of God. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Mainly the reason they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead is because they really only, even though they were very strict in their interpretation of the Bible, they only held to the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And so, and in the Pentateuch, when you look at it, there's not a lot of teaching on the resurrection in the Pentateuch. There is allusions to it, as Jesus pointed out, but there's not a lot of direct... Uh, uh, direct teaching. So they didn't really hold to the resurrection of the dead, and it's one of the things that they argued about. And so they bring up this example. 
Jesus tells them, you do not understand the word of God or the power of God. God is able to raise the dead back to life. They must have had a real problem with the fact that Lazarus was just risen from the dead. In fact, in another gospel, it tells us that their intent was to put Lazarus to death as well because they didn't want him being resurrected from the dead and showing who Christ was either. There's just something in us that knows there's more to life, isn't there? There's something inside of humans. This is one of the things that I wonder about with uh, people that believe in evolution. Why are people so bent on this idea that there's more to life if there isn't any more to life? If we're just from evolution, that just the chemicals came together in just the right way to make life, and then that life is just all natural, it's just all from the things that we see around us, the physical elements, and it's all just a big scientific experiment, then why do, why do certain things exist? Why does religion exist? Why would natural processes make a being that would be religious? Why would natural processes make a being that is so sure that there's something more out there? That life does not end at the grave. It doesn't just happen within Christianity or Judaism. Everywhere you look, old Egyptians, they used to bury people with all kinds of stuff so that they could take that into the afterlife with them. In fact, even Native American cultures here would bury sometimes a pony with a, with a warrior that died so that he could have a pony to hunt and go to war with in the happy hunting land. Every culture in the world, people are sure that there's more than what we see here, that there's more than just this life, that we go on from here, that we continue to exist. And if evolution was the case, I don't know how natural processes could ever create a people that were so religious and so sure of things to come afterwards. In our forefathers, I think of Benjamin Franklin. He wasn't, in the biblical sense, he wasn't really a Christian probably. But even he said this. In fact, this is written on his tombstone. It says, The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is bound in the heart of man. God has put this within us that we know that there is more out there. Man doesn't always get a clear picture as you look around the world. Outside of God's clear revelation of himself to us, we make mistakes about it, but that eternity is still bound in the heart of man. Every culture is uh, religious in one way or another. As we look at it here, what about the Sadducees? The Old Testament clearly taught the resurrection. Probably the most clear place is in Daniel chapter 12. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel clearly taught that there would be a resurrection of the dead. The book of Job, which is probably actually our oldest book in the Bible, says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And so Job acknowledges it as well. But remember, the Sadducees, they wouldn't hold to those books. They only wanted in the first Five. And so what does Jesus tell them? Look at how Jesus uses the Word of God. It's important because the way Jesus uses the Word of God is the way we should use the Word of God. God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Jesus bases this whole truth on, on one tense of a word. I am. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were all dead at the time. He said, I am the God of of them. And so Jesus says from that we know one thing that God is the God of the living. God's word is inspired right down to the very tense of a word. Just like Jesus said before, to the dotting of the I or a crossing of a T, the word of God will not pass away. 
Well, in John chapter 5, Jesus would say this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So he talks about there being a resurrection, and some, just as Daniel had said, some would be resurrected to a life that is rewarded and blissful by God. Some would be resurrected to a life of judgment before God, but all would face resurrection. Well, in the Bible, as we go on in the New Testament, it is more clearly revealed to us even uh, as to the timing of these things and everything. We've, the Bible says there's two resurrections. The first one happens in a, a few phases. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. As we look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, it says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what do we see so far? We see at the very beginning, 1 Corinthians says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, which means he's the first, more to come. Then we see when he returns for his people, he's going to resurrect the dead there. And then you have the rest of the tribulation period where people are making a decision with their life. And if they embrace Christ and not the Antichrist, then they're put to death. But they get to go to heaven. But if they embrace the Antichrist by taking his mark, mark of the beast, then their doom is sealed. Well, it says at the end of that time, at the end of that tribulation period, that there will be this resurrection of the dead, and that's the Considered All of this is considered the first resurrection. So at the end of the tribulation time, you have the rest of the first resurrection, the people that were martyred during the tribulation, and then you go into the kingdom. The kingdom is when Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years. Then the rest of the dead did not come to life till a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then it talks about later the second resurrection. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the unbelievers. So the resurrection of the dead that are not in Christ. And they are resurrected to judgment. They're resurrected to the second death, which is the lake of fire. Well, the next issue that comes up, we see taxes, the resurrection. They deal with the greatest commandment. This one's not brought with quite as much. They're still trying to trip him up. But it looks like this comes from one of the Pharisees. As they noticed that the Sadducees had fallen on their face. So they're gathered together trying to figure out how to trip up Jesus. And I think that what happened is you look at the different Gospels. Because this guy comes with a little bit more sincere of a question. Because I think this guy's pretty impressed with the answers Jesus gave to the taxes and the resurrection. And so he asked Jesus a question. And I don't think his total intent was to trip him up. He's definitely one of the Pharisees, but I think there's a little more sincerity mixed in his question. And the reason is, after Jesus answers this question, this guy tells Jesus, you've answered well. And then Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom. And so I think there's more sincerity in this individual as he comes before Christ. I think he got caught up in the issues a little bit, and then he just had this question. Well, he asked him, what's the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus tells them the greatest commandment is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. All your mind. The second's like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. If you love God with all of your heart, you're not going to make graven images. You're not going to uh, worship idols. You're, you're not going to have any other gods before Him. You're, going to, you're not going to use His name in vain. And if you're Israel, you're going to honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. The next six of the Ten Commandments have to do with your relationship with other people. And you know what? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to take their wife. You're not going to take their stuff. You're not going to kill them. And you're not going to uh, bear false witness against them. And you're going to honor your parents. That's... Love answers all of that. There isn't any command that, that really lies outside of the scope that love doesn't reach. Love is the answer to all of it. You know what is really cool? What is really cool is that the, these Jewish people that asked Jesus what is the greatest commandments, Jesus would have had to go no farther than to say, look on your forehead. If you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Well, then it goes on from there, and it says, And you shall teach these commands to your children. And you shall bind them about your head as frontlets between your eyes and on your hand. And you shall bind them to your doorposts of your house. And so they made little copies of Deuteronomy 6 and and 11 and parts of Exodus 13. And they put them in this little thing that they would strap on their wrist and they would tie on their head and would hang down on their forehead. And then they had this little box on the doorpost of their house and they would put these little parts of the Word of God in those doorposts on their house, that was a part of their day and a part of certain ceremonies. This was like the, the essentials of Judaism. Hear, O Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That was such a big part of their life. Jesus says it's right in front of you. In fact, it's hanging between your eyes. Sometimes it's on the doorposts of your house. That's the basis for the law. Love the Lord your God. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the last issue that we come to is the issue that Jesus raises. See, at the end of all their questioning and trying to trip him up, and they say that uh, in all honesty, we're just seeking the truth, which they're absolutely not. But in the end, Jesus doesn't let them get away. In the end, he asks them a question. And the question is, who is the Christ? You know what? That's the most crucial question you can answer in your life. Who is this Christ? Because that's really why they're after him, because he's claiming to be the Christ, and they're insisting that he is not. And he asked them a question, who's the Christ? And they said, well, it's the son of David, which we've talked about that. He had to be the son of David because he had to come from the lineage of David because of the covenant that God made with David. But Jesus asked them the next question then. He says, if he's the son of David, why does David call him his Lord? When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for under your feet. David clearly referred to him as deity, referred to him as God. And you know what? From that time it says nobody dared ask him another question. (laughs) We can't compete here. (laughs) They couldn't accomplish what they want, so they'd rather just go home. But Jesus is, this is another opportunity, but he's just showing them. Look, the issue that you guys are all beating around the bush at, you're asking me about taxes, you're asking me about the resurrection, you're asking me about the law. Why don't we talk about what we're really talking about? The rule we're really talking about is am I the Christ or not? And then he gives evidence that the Scripture supports that his claim to be the Son of God, which meant sameness of nature, so he's God in the flesh, is not unbiblical. In fact, David recognized that when his own son, the seed of David, would come to occupy the throne, that he would be more than just the seed of David. When the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
You see, Jesus gave them an opportunity. He's like, you want to argue with taxes to try to get me in trouble? You want to, you want to argue about the resurrection to try to make me look foolish? Why don't we talk about what's really important? Am I the Christ? You know what? In every one of our, in our lives, there isn't a more important issue than you can wrestle with than that one. Because that issue there determines which resurrection you'll be in. You'll be resurrected to blessing and glory and honor in Christ's kingdom if you have him as your Savior. If you do not, you are resurrected to eternal judgment and damnation in the lake of fire.